Hey everybody, how's it going? This is Hub, and welcome back to another episode of Tighten Up the Defense, a podcast that would likely benefit from a tagline. As I believe I just mentioned, my name is Hub, and I hope you're having a fine whenever the heck it is you end up listening to this. As you no doubt recall, last week's introduction ended on a bit of a cliffhanger. Let's take a listen. I did see the movie Uncle Drew this week. And now for the exciting conclusion. Well, in the week since I dropped that teaser trailer, the internet has been abuzz asking what my thoughts were on the film Uncle Drew, the movie based on the shoe commercial where Kyrie Irving dresses up as an old man and plays basketball. So, here goes. I liked it. Was it a good movie? Probably not. But I love movies about underdog bands of misfits who team up and win a tournament. If that's the basic premise of the film, chances are I'm going to enjoy it. The only real condition that a sports film has to meet in order for me to like it is that it cannot be more racist than the film Major League. It's a pretty low bar, because the movie Major League is pretty racist. But, I'll tell you this right now, Major League 2 didn't make the cut. Now let me see if I can answer some of your questions about Uncle Drew. Do we stop playing because we get old? Great question, and the film answers this, no, we do not. We get old because we stop playing. This point is made many times. I would go so far as to say it may be the main theme of the movie, although there is also the idea of teamwork in some vague and nebulous way and the importance of basketball and family. It is very important to Uncle Drew that young people start playing basketball the right way, which I think is supposed to mean something about teamwork, although he does try to teach someone this lesson by beating them one-on-one, and showboating a lot, which may have undercut his message on the importance of fundamentals. Does Shaquille O'Neal's character talk about the fact that he hates Kobe Bryant? Yes, he does. And I am always there for that. I'm of the opinion that pretty much any movie would be improved if a character just turned to the screen and said the line, you know what? Fuck Kobe Bryant. Also, there's a fun joke about Chris Webber not knowing how many timeouts are left. So that's nice, too. Now, here are the questions some of you had on Twitter about Uncle Drew. BGSU Batman Conference wants to know, why was it made? Well, clearly for people like me. And also, as a public service announcement, that we don't stop playing because we get old. We get old because we stop playing. Hicks asked, Uncle Drew what? Uncle Drew, boffo box office numbers, that's what Uncle Drew... Probably, I haven't looked it up. Luke of Felt wants to know, did you lose a piece of yourself not unlike most survivors of the D-Day invasion? Great question, Luke. No, I didn't. I enjoyed it. I would go so far as to say that this was probably my favorite movie made out of a TV commercial. And that includes the California Raisins Christmas special, which I'm not entirely sure meets my major league criteria. Chris O'Connor wants to know, what denomination is Preacher a preacher of? what are the theological implications of the story, and compare and contrast the character arc of Drew to the archetypical hero of Joseph Campbell's The Hero's Journey. Woof! 
A lot of questions there, Chris. So first of all, I got to believe that Preacher is probably a Southern Baptist. I am going by the fact that he is in the South and he is very definitely interested in baptizing people. Like, super into it, he wants to dunk a baby. Theological implications, I'm pretty sure that Nate Robinson's character Boots is a Christ figure. And as for Uncle Drew's hero's journey, doesn't really meet Campbell's criteria in as much as Uncle Drew is very, very good at basketball throughout the film and doesn't really struggle with all that much. I would say that Lil Rel Howery's character Dax has the more traditional hero's journey in this story. Max, the comics guy who does comics about comics, wants to know, is it the summer equivalent of a Christmas prince? Great question, Max. I'm going to say no. The defining characteristic of a Christmas prince is that she has a boss who works at a newspaper who talks like she works in the newsroom on a screwball comedy from the 1930s, see? Uncle Drew doesn't have that. But it does have non-actor celebrities playing lead roles. So, I'm going to say it's the summer equivalent of a Christmas wedding planner, which has Joey Fatone as the best friend. And Saint Nick wants to know, who would win in a fight, Uncle Drew or Uncle Buck? Great question, Nick. I'm going to have to go with Uncle Drew. The man is a professional athlete. I know Uncle Buck has the size on him and has a lot of heart, but Uncle Drew is straight up magical, and he once won a game while holding a ham sandwich in one hand. And there you have, as promised, my thoughts on the film Uncle Drew. Now, without any further ado, let's, uh, do this. Today's synopsis rhyme is submitted by Fred Made-Up Name. The Warthog Shoe Store owner tried to sell Bebop Zips... But those only come in children's sizes. Synopsis! Thanks, Fred! And on a completely unrelated note, we're pretty low on synopsis rhymes right now. So, you know, maybe send those in. Defenders, number 42, December 1976. And in this corner, the new emissaries of evil. Written by Jerry Conway, drotted by Keith Giffen, inked by Klaus Janssen, Colored by Klaus Janssen, lettered by John Costanza, and edited by Jerry Conway. Defensive lineup The Incredible Hulk, Doctor Strange, Valkyrie, Nighthawk, Luke Cage. Previously in the Defenders. Um, there's this team that says they aren't really a team, but they're totally a team, and they're called the Defenders. Godzooks! With a new creative team and a new story arc, is that really all the pertinent information you need to understand what happens in this issue? Will Jerry Conway manage to clear the low bar of comprehensibility that Steve Gerber set in his two years as writer of this series? And is it generally a good idea for a creator to be his own editor? Stay tuned to find out. Okay, so, nope, not even close. But fortunately, we get nine separate little asterisks that reference the various other titles you will need to read in order to follow this story. Only in the sense that this story manages to limbo right under that bar without even brushing it. And no. No, it is not. That's why Corey and I record this podcast drunk, and then I edit it when I'm sober. It's like I'm a different guy who has no idea what those other two guys were talking about. Tried doing it the opposite way, and... That usually doesn't work out quite as well. 
It's Friday night, and the Defenders are having a quiet evening in the Sanctum Sanctimonious. Then, Nighthawk spontaneously combusts. Hooray! So far, the Jerry Conway era is off to a great start. The other Defenders are a bit confused as to why Kyle has just done his best impression of a Spinal Tap drummer. For some reason, Valkyrie would like Kyle to not be on fire anymore, so she does her best to douse the flames. Val is wearing her old costume again, not the golden burrito outfit that Clea gave her as a you're-not-in-prison-anymore present. Luke Cage mentions that he is tough and from the streets, and also that the heat ray that immolated their billionaire duel bird enthusiast buddy seems to be coming through the Sanctum's window. Hulk Kool-Aid mans his way through the Sanctum's wall to investigate. I guess technically, seeing as he's departing rather than arriving, he reverse Kool-Aid mans his way out of the Sanctum. Reverse Kool-Aid Man sounds like a potentially fatal sexual position, but seeing as I haven't yet clipped out enough proof-of-purchase UPC codes to send away for my copy of the Kool-Aid Sutra, I can't confirm that. Steve helpfully points out that he knows magic. Then, he, Luke, and the Hulk head outside to see what just flash-fried Kyle. Before flying through the new hole in his apartment's wall, Steve tells Val that she should stay inside and tend to Nighthawk's wounds, because I guess as a woman, Val is expected to intrinsically know how to nurse her teammate back to health. Val attempts to heal her non-teammate by essentially standing near him and going, Uh, you okay? So, Steve's sexist assumptions seem as though they're pretty unfounded. Once they get outside, the male defenders are confronted by a giant fiery dude, who looks a little like a red and yellow clad flaming Conan the Barbarian. The arson prone antagonist introduces himself as Solar and explains that, perhaps unsurprisingly given this sobriquet, he has solar based powers. The luminous lughead goes on to demand that the defenders hand over something called the Star of Capistan. Much like myself, the defenders have no idea what the fuck this flaming turdbag is talking about. Rather than request clarification, the Hulk responds predictably by smashing. Or rather, attempted smashing. Because as the enraged Emerald Avenger approaches his fiery foe, he is attacked from behind by a muscly meathead, wearing what appears at first to be some adorable footy pajamas. Closer inspection, coupled with a helpful declarative introduction, reveal that this newcomer is no mere Garanimal aficionado, but the stampeding supervillain known as the Rhino. An asterisk informs us that in The Incredible Hulk 171, the Rhino teamed up with a gamma-radiated jerkhole named The Abomination for a punch-em-up with that title's purple-panted protagonist. Okay. Everybody fights everybody. Tired of asking Kyle if he's done being on fire, after a couple of pages, Val joins the fray as well. During the course of the battle, we learn that 1. Rhino and Solar are part of a new group called the Emissaries of Evil, B. This alliterative organization is operating under the misapprehension that the Defenders are in possession of something called the Star of Capistan. And three, in issue number 160 of Captain America, Solar fought Captain America and the Falcon. Good to know. After a prolonged period of pugilism, the perfidious partnership of Solar and Rhino finally figure out that the Defenders are not in possession of the magical MacGuffin they have been sent to retrieve. So they teleport back to their space station. Which is, I guess, a thing that they can do. The Hulk is understandably confused, so Doctor Strange helpfully points out that the Defenders recently appeared in the pages of The Incredible Hulk number 206 and 207. Thanks, Steve. 
Meanwhile, aboard the Emissaries of Evil's satellite headquarters high above the Earth, Rhino and Solar report to their leader, who turns out to be none other than that villainous egghead, Egghead. That asshole? Well, I guess that explains why the Emissaries of Evil have such a stupid name. Seriously, they're half a step away from calling themselves Satan's Gophers, or Hell's Administrative Assistants. Rhino and Solar explain that the Defenders did not, in fact, have the Star of Kapistan, whatever the hell that is. In a surprisingly self-aware tantrum, Egghead yells at his underlings that he is unable to recognize his own shortcomings, so he will blame them for his mistakes. Uh, okay. Egghead seals his employees in some special torture tubes he installed in the space station, and tells them that he'll let them out in ten hours. I realize that the EOE is a new and relatively small evil organization, but damn do they need an HR department. Having disposed of his only possible audience, Egghead decides to recite several pages of exposition to no one in particular. Fair enough. Maybe Egghead is short for Exposition Head. Nah, it's probably because he has that enormous egg-shaped head. Egghead informs, um, us I guess, that we last saw him in Giant Size Defenders number 4 when he blew up Kyle's car and with it his niece Trish Star's arm. Our heroes teamed up with Yellow Jacket and threw him in jail. Since that issue, he arranged for his parole from prison, stole a space station from NASA, and recruited Rhino and Solar, who we are once again reminded was last seen in Captain America 160, to do his evil bidding. The evil bidding in question being the theft of the aforementioned Star of Kapistan, which is apparently the largest ruby not just on Earth, but in the entire universe. Um, you know what, never mind, fine. The Mega Super Ruby's guardian is a dude named Omar Karindu, who despite never having appeared in a comic book before, Eggie assures us, is definitely Doctor Strange's oldest and closest pal. The star was moved to New York recently, so the soliloquizing supervillain is positive that Omar must have given the gem to his oldest and bestest pal, Stephen Strange. Having delivered this metric ton of scrambled exposition to an audience of no one, Egghead readies himself to begin phase... I don't know, 11 or something, of his evil scheme. Meanwhile, at a hospital downtown, Kyle is being treated for his burn wounds. Steve, Val, and Luke have accompanied the affluent avian-themed adventure for moral support. The doctor tells Kyle that he has good news and weird news. The good news is, Kyle's just fine. The weird news is, Kyle's wounds were all psychosomatic and he was never on fire. Huh. Solar definitely has sun-based powers and was melting shit and lighting it on fire during the earlier tussle. Does he also have psychological powers? I mean, I guess Apollo was the god of the sun, and also the god of medicine, and psychiatry is a field of medicine, so maybe? Hey, he was also the god of music, so maybe Solar has a beautiful singing voice as well. I hope that comes up later. Anyway, everybody's pretty stoked that the only thing wrong with Nighthawk is his brain, which was pretty much tapioca to begin with. As they are celebrating, a swarthy older gentleman approaches Doctor Strange and introduces himself as Bundu. Bundu informs the surprise sorcerer that his boss is Omar Karindu, Steve's elusive long-lost bestie. Omar would like to have a chat and requests that Steve come and meet him in his hotel. Steve agrees and heads downtown. When he arrives at Omar's room, the two start catching up on old times. An asterisk informs us that even though Omar has never appeared in a comic before, if he had, it would have been in Strange Tales number 136. 
except he didn't. Uh, okay. Omar explains to his best buddy in the world that since they last talked in that issue Omar wasn't actually in, he has become the guardian of that magic ruby everybody's talking about. The only problem is, the super ultra ruby has gone all bonkers. He gets the allegedly cuckoo gem out and tells Steve to have a look at it. Steve takes a gander at the stone and is instantly zonked out. Dang! What gives, Omar? If you can't trust your best friend who's just been lazily retconned into existence, then who can you trust? Meanwhile, outside the hospital where Kyle is being treated for his non-existent wounds, some giant green dude is waiting patiently on a bench. It is impossible to tell who this huge emerald-skinned behemoth is, on account of whoever it is has donned a fedora and put on a trench coat that nearly covers his purple jorts. Suddenly, the ground starts shaking, and the stranger's hat is knocked off. Why, it's the Hulk! Who would have guessed it? The verdant master of disguise is shocked to see that the apparent earthquake heralded the arrival of a gigantic blue guy in an armored suit. Hulk recognizes the newcomer as the atomic-powered villain Ralph Roberts, a.k.a. the Cobalt Man. The Jade Giant is taken aback, because, as yet another asterisk informs us, the Hulk witnessed the Cobalt Man's death in the Incredible Hulk number 174. Well, if death isn't going to stop Ralph from walking around and using his atomic powers to make the Hulk's hat fall off, then the Hulk isn't going to let it stop him from trying to beat the crap out of the recently deceased Disguise Ruiner. When the other defenders witness the two titans tussling outside, they hurry to get in on the act too and lend their respective fists to the noble task of punching the crud out of the possibly dead supervillain. Things seem to be going pretty good for the alive guys, but unbeknownst to our heroes, pummeling that ambulatory radioactive corpse could have cataclysmic results. From his stolen NASA space station, Egg's position head Egg's bounds to no one that he is the one responsible for the Cobalt Man's resurrection, and true to form, he did so with sinister intent. Is he going to produce an unauthorized remake of Weekend at Bernie's 2? No, the ovoid-headed misanthrope has plans that are arguably even more perfidious than that, for he has rigged Ralph Roberts' body with a remote control bomb, and when it is triggered, it will set off an atomic explosion that will destroy the defenders once and for all. And, you know, presumably the rest of New York as well. Man, considering that the last time we saw Egghead back in, let me check that sixth asterisk, Giant Size Defenders number four, he was planting car bombs and getting thrown out of the homeless shelter he was staying in? That dude has really upped his supervillain game. And joining us once again is my good-for-many-things brother, Corey. Corey, how you doing? I am doing okay. How are you? I am okay. I'm sleepy, but good. Good and sleepy. Good and sleepy. All right. <laughs> so... That reminds me of that Thundercats episode where I know I've talked about it. I don't know if I've talked about it on the show. It's the one episode that I remember. But this ugly cockroach man comes down to Earth. Oh, right. And Snarf thinks that he's evil. Mm -hmm. And so they all attack him. Mm -hmm. And then he ends up teaming up with them to fight off the bad guy mutants. And then at the end, he, and he gives a speech about how you shouldn't judge people by their appearances. And then he gets in a spaceship and flies away. Mm -hmm. And Snarf says... I'm glad he's gone. He was ugly. And Panthro, who, as it turns out, is voiced by the grandfather on The Cosby Show. Damn, nice nice call. I had no idea. I just knew they sounded the same. Cliff. 
Snarf. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, same thing. It says, but Snarf, he was good. He was our friend. And then Snarf says, yeah, but he was so ugly. And then Panther says, yeah, good and ugly. <laughs> yeah. Oh, good and tired. Yeah. Good and ugly. Yeah. Got it. Panther connection. Mostly I just wanted to reckon that I was right about a weird cartoon voice thing. Good job. Thank you. Other than sleepy, I am okay. We read a comic book. Yeah. What'd you, what'd you think of that comic book? I thought it had maybe a few more words than it needed to have, and way more, uh, do you call them footnotes? Those, like, references to things yeah. that happened in other issues than Man. it needed to have? Yeah. It's like trying to read Infinite Jest. I was like, God damn it, more footnotes! Oh, boy. Yeah, it is David Foster Wallerian in this. <laughs> uh, footnotesiness? Yeah. Yeah, I'm good at I words. I think that's the literary term. Yeah, footnotesiness. Mm-hmm. Boy. <laughs> Saying that, you sound both pretty smart and really dumb. It's a fine line between clever and stupid, isn't that? It's what, a fine line say? between saying things that make sense. Yeah. <laughs> Cheers. The writer of this issue is Jerry Conway. Mm-hmm. The artist of this issue is Keith Geffen, or the penciler, I should say. The inks are continued by Klaus Jansen, which lends some nice continuity. Really liked the art in this issue. I like the art as well. I was surprised. I was set for a letdown from Salbusema, and I'm not going to say this is better than Salbusema or worse, but I think they are both very good. Mm -hmm. I was mostly familiar with Keith Giffen from probably more familiar with his writing than his art, but what I was familiar with his work as an artist on was mostly 80s and 90s stuff, and his art style definitely got a lot more stylized and different, less house style, less traditional. Um, and it wasn't something that I was sure I liked. So seeing him draw in more of the Marvel house style was interesting. And I thought he did a really good job with it. Yeah, it actually wasn't. I thought it would be a really jarring issue moving so much to the creative. I mean, basically, yeah, yeah the pencils and the, the writing to yeah. different people. I did find the writing pretty fucking jarring. I have liked a lot of what I have read of Jerry Conway stuff in the past. Not all of it. But I liked his stuff on the early Firestorm stuff. Uh, I liked some of his Spider-Man stuff. He wrote some issues of Secret Society of Supervillains that I liked. I did not like this issue. Do you think that he... Like, because Gerber has a, had a fair amount of exposition and whatnot. Yeah. And so maybe he was just like, okay, I'm saving up all these awesome ideas. And then when I have my debut, I'm going to out Gerber Gerber. The thing is... It didn't really have all that much in the way of new ideas. I feel like this issue had so many words for so little story. It's the first, like, 15 pages of the book are basically a big fight scene, except for it's a fight scene that everybody will not shut the fuck up and just exposition dumping all over. But the exposition doesn't even fucking make sense. Yeah, what happened to Egghead? I don't know. That's not the Egghead we've seen before. Mm. Yeah, that bothered me, and we will definitely get more into that later. I don't know. I think he's kind of cool. Like, as you think a, Egghead's kind of cool as a as a criminal, like a criminal mastermind. He's like, well, I stole this NASA satellite. I found these two dudes in the desert. I found this other dude in space. I made him real powerful. Go. Okay, except for he's saying all of that shit to himself for no goddamn reason over the course of like what felt like nine pages. It was probably two or three. But what's dumb about that is he's got the t his two underlings, the Rhino and Solar, are hanging out there. Mm -hmm. 
And before he launches into his huge fucking exposition dump of all the shit that he's been into, he locks them away in a stasis field where they can't hear him and then delivers his exposition to nobody. Oh, I think he's got a little bit of space craziness. You think he's got space madness? A little bit, because, yeah, there was a part, we were talking about this earlier, of where he says, like, this really self-aware thing, but you can't say a thing that's that self-aware and and claim that you're not self-aware, which is also... Which is what what he he is is claiming. Yeah. So what he says is... Impossible! For months I've analyzed all available information, extrapolated, deduced, surmised. Stephen Strange must possess the Star of Capistan. It's the only possible possibility. On that I stake my reputation as the world's greatest criminal genius, the new Napoleon of Deceit, the man men call Egghead. Contemplation of my own inadequacy is abhorrent to me, therefore you must accept the full blame. Yeah, so he's saying, I'm probably in the wrong, but I can't think about the fact that I'm in the wrong because I'm too great to do that, so I'm going to punish you. Whoa. Yeah, whoa, except for the fact that I don't think it's intentional. I don't think he's supposed to come across as having space madness. Part of the problem with this issue is Jerry Conway is his own editor, and you need a fucking editor. He keeps dropping editorial notes to other comic books in here, There are... That fox is just going to keep eating those hens. Huh? (laughs) Having... If you're an editor, editing your own work, it's like a fox guarding a hen house. Ah, yes. I see. And when you eat a hen, you get a reference to another comic book. And they're just all over the place. They are fucking all... Okay, so we get references Uh. to... Hulk 171, Mm. which is where the Abomination and Rhino fought the Hulk. We get references to Captain America 160. He references that one twice, and he could have just waited and referenced it once the second time, which is where we last saw Solar. We get references to Hulk 206 and 207, uh, where the Defenders recently had to stop the Hulk from having a rampage. We get references to Giant Size Defenders 4, which again, he references twice on consecutive pages. We get reference to Strange Tales number 136, sort of, which is a weird random issue that he then decided that during that issue, something else happened off panel, which is a fucking cheat of a reference. And then we get a reference to Hulk 174, which is where we saw the last Cobalt Man. And I had to look up all of those. And when I did, it just made me mad that I wasn't reading those comic books instead of this comic book. Because mostly they're better comic books than this. It was reminiscent of a Wikipedia article where, like, everything's referenced. And then sometimes you fall into this hole of references and then forgot what you were initially trying to figure out. Yeah, It was like reading a textbook to me. Like, I would read the same page over and over again sometimes and just not have absorbed any of the information on it. Not weird how Um, that can happen. What? Where does that go in your brain when that happens? Because you read the stuff, but you just don't... Yeah, it's... I just was sounding out the words in my head. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. That happened to me a couple times in this book, too. Like, literally, I I read the whole speech that we were just talking about. And then I was like, wait a minute. Yeah, it's because it doesn't make any sense because you can't, like, your mind wants to shape things into narrative. And when the narrative doesn't make sense or there isn't a narrative, it just, there's no wick to hold that information to. And so you have to go back until, yeah, I ended up doing that a few times in this. So I read this book a while ago that was Will Eisner 
interviewing different uh, illustrators about their life and their approach to creating comic books. And one of the people that he interviewed was Neil Adams. Hmm. They talked about what it was like working with different writers. And Neil Adams, during this time period in the 70s, he did some work at Marvel. And he said he really liked the way that Roy Thomas wrote dialogue for his characters. And Jerry Conway did a terrible job. And he couldn't believe the dialogue that was coming out of his characters' mouths when Jerry Conway put the word bubbles in. So when you are criticized for having unrealistic dialogue by a man who wrote the line for a 10-year-old boy, what the shit do you care, pig meat? Damn. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) That's some harsh shit, man. (laughs) That is maybe my favorite thing a 10-year-old boy has ever said, though. Thank you, Mr. Adams. (laughs) Pretty good. Bring back Skate Man. (laughs) Oh, boy. But don't let Jerry Conway write it. I don't know. I feel like I... I'm dunking on Conway a lot in this, and I feel kind of bad because I have liked a lot of what he has written, but I hated this issue so much. You gotta give him a few tries, I think. Yeah, he's got a couple more issues. I think maybe he'll pull it out a little bit, but this was no fun to read. And I've had issues with the content of some of the Gerber issues, certainly. Mm Mm-hmm. I have not had a comic book that I felt was this clumsily executed that we've read in a really, really long time from a writing standpoint. It really bugged me. Got to hear Power Man say Christmas? Yeah, and that's part of what I found really frustrating. The first few pages of this, I was fine with. I felt like it did a decent job of, okay, I get that this is a new writer, and that's fine. And we're introducing the different characters and having them kind of give a few lines explaining who they are and what this new writer's relationship to those characters is. And I thought it did a fine job of that. You get the Hulk smashing. You get some really cool dialogue from Valkyrie, although her introduction has its own weird little lazy writing thing happening in it. Yeah, okay. When it introduces Valkyrie, Valkyrie's wearing her old costume again. Good choice. I like her old costume. It was so jarring to me that they didn't explain what happened. It wouldn't have been jarring if they hadn't explained what happened, if they hadn't explained that they weren't explaining what happened. And that's what what I'm talking about with the writing in this. It's got some cool shit for for Val to do. She says some cool, like, as guardian-type dialogue. And we're like, okay, so she's just being written as a badass warrior woman. And I'm, I'm cool with that. Now she is far more than mortal flesh and blood. Now, having regained a costume she once believed lost, she is woman incarnate, the Valkyrie. So I get they want to put her in her old costume. That's fine. She did believe it lost. It was lost. They don't talk about how they have it back. They could have just put her in this costume. I would have been fine with her putting with them putting her back in her old costume. I like this costume better than the one she was just wearing in the past couple issues with the weird gold foil one where she was like a as guardian burrito i need more fucking explanation man yeah i need Just more like, oh, or I, less explanation i found not... we found the old one yeah that would have been fine that was something or she had dr strange magic her a costume that looked like her old one she didn't know how to tell claire that she really didn't like the suit that claire made her costume got destroyed in a battle with Shazanana. Yeah. Anything. She donated it to uh, 
A telethon. <laughs> yeah. They take costumes. Probably. Yeah, they have a big uh, thermometer, and when it fills up with a million donated costumes, then all of the Halloween-a-thon, telethon, those poor children who do not have adequate costumes get new costumes. It's a beautiful thing. Yeah, they could have done that, for example. Sure. They all get costumes that they uh, can then put parkas over. Sure. Because it's cold. Yeah. Cold on those winter nights. Yeah. Fall nights. I guess it's not winter for Halloween, technically. Mm. Pretty chilly. Yeah, pretty chilly. But yes, that bit aside, the introduction of Luke Cage is done pretty well. It It is kind of a thing where everybody gets their little moment. It's almost like a Saturday Night Live impression where a character will show up and state who they are and what their thing is. And then you'll move on to the next person. Yeah, Luke Cage. I knew things would get hot when I joined the Defenders, but this is worse than midnight in Times Square. Because that's where he lives. And so you explain that. And then he says like, holy mama, whatever that ray is, it's coming from outside. And then Hulk says he wants to smash someone must pay. And then Doctor Strange says by the hoary hosts of Hogoth, what manner of magic is this? And then the bad guy shows up and literally says, my name is Solar, master of the Solar Flame. And then Rhino shows up and says that it's the Rhino, baddest bruiser of them all. Like, everybody gets their little moment. It's a little bit lazy, Except but I'm fine Kyle. with it. Well, I, Kyle, Kyle gets, just shows up and he's like, ow, ow. Which yeah, was which to me. is kind of his thing. And one thing that I did kind of like is he is described as the oft-injured yeah, <laughs> Nighthawk. That's true. And so I think to a certain extent, Conway is saying, like, and who this guy is, is a liability. And I'm fine with that. World's greatest detective. <laughs> or, no, uh, secret agent. Yeah, no, that's Jack Norris. Oh, I conflate them sometimes. Well, they're both assholes. Yeah. Well, I, I think we've spent enough time taking Jerry Conway out to the woodshed. Teaching him about firewood? Yeah, you know, like, this is Birch. It'll burn hot, but uh, it's good for starting a fire, but not for a sustained flame. <laughs> really? Is that true? I, I think so. Yeah. Yeah. You got your oak. Yeah. Oak's Bur a good hardwood. Burns hot. Uh-huh. Are we going to England? Sure. Okay. Well, we're, taking, we're going out to the woodshed. You don't want your pine. It's full of sap. It's going to leave too much residue. Leave your chimney full of creosote. Instead of starting a fire, you're going to have to call the fire department. Ah, yep. sure. Yeah. So, okay. yeah. So I'm, I'm, we're done doing that. Okay. Taking somebody out to the woodshed. That's an expression, right? I don't know. I think I've heard it before. I think it's probably an allusion to um, socially accepted child abuse. Like, like take you somebody out back somebody and beat in them the up. House, you got to beat them in the shed. Yeah, maybe. Uh, maybe you just are going to hit them with some wood. Oh, no. Yeah, and, well, at least you're upfront about it if you're hitting somebody with wood. It's like, because Bing Crosby, you know, he used to hit his kids with sacks of oranges so it wouldn't leave bruises. That's messed up. It is messed up. It wouldn't have been that much better if he hit them with wood. <laughs> what you need is an honest beating. <laughs> you know, maybe just don't hit anybody. Authorities be darned. Maybe he was going to just take them out to the woodshed and make that. Maybe it was just you take somebody out to the woodshed and you make them chop wood all day. Or... Stack 
wood. A stack of cord of firewood. Yeah, I used to have to do that. It's hard work. Yeah, me too. Get splinters occasionally. Sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. Did you use those little uh, iron wedges to to split the wood, or were you able to do it with a single axe stroke? Oh, we had a splitting maul. So yeah, we had a splitting maul too, but... That was easier than the little wedge thing. Because the wedge thing is like a splitting maul, but, but you got to hit it with another big hammer. Yeah. A sledgehammer. But, I mean, if you're if you're smaller, it's easier to... I don't know. Oh. I think you just need to toughen up and go back to the woodshed. God damn it. This has been Back to the Woodshed with Hub and Corey. Oh, yeah. Thanks for getting into touch with us. Let's talk about Egghead and the bad guys we get in this issue. All right. His team's called the Emissaries of Evil. Pretty good. Yeah, not bad. I guess in this situation, because he's sending them out on missions, Egghead is the evil in this. And he's sending his emissaries out to do his bidding. Mm -hmm. So the emissaries would be Rhino and Solar and Mr. Cobalt. Cobalt Cobalt Man. Man. Sorry. It's okay. You can give him a fancy name. Mr. isn't that fancy. Pretty fancy. Okay. I mean, it's better than nothing. I think it's less fancy than the Cobalt Man. Either way, those are your emissaries. Rhino, I like Rhino. I think in general he's a pretty good bad guy. In this issue, he's fine. He's dumb. He's not quite as dumb as I like him. I think as his character goes on, he is maybe viewed as less of a threat, but is also seen as more almost comedically stupid, mm-hmm. which I enjoy. But he's fine. He's just kind of a generic, big, strong guy, but not as big and strong as the Hulk. Mm-hmm. We get uh, Solar. Which I keep confusing because there's Dr. Solar, Man of the Atom, which was an old Dell comic that then got revived in the Valiant era. And he's not that guy. He's a dude who got left out in the sun too much, and he was a mutant, and then, like, Sunstroke gave him super sun powers, and he robbed banks and shit. He's viewed as almost a cosmic-level threat in this, and he can create sunburns inside of people and on Kyle, except for they're all psychosomatic. But he can still burn you to death with them, maybe. But he can also melt pavement. Well, that's because he's really getting inside that pavement's head. Oh. I don't know. I feel like they should have to choose whether his burns are real or psychosomatic. And they don't really seem to want to do that. So there's a scene in which they've taken Kyle to the hospital to get his burns treated. And he's sitting there with his shirt off. And there's a doctor (laughs) next to him with this big jar of ointment. Yeah. Ostensibly. And they're having this discussion about, like, oh, it was all in your head. And he's like, oh, it felt real. But, like, did they just not realize that? They got there and they, he took his shirt off and they're like, dude, you're fine. And he's like, no, I'm, oh, shit. <laughs> I am. Put that ointment away. Like, I, I guess it must have been. I. It's weird. His injuries are treated so oddly because, like, Solar shows up and just immediately fries the shit out of Kyle. Which, okay. There are worse ways to make an entrance. But in the middle of that, like, Valkyrie had just been, like, preparing herself to really kick some ass. She gets some great lines in. She gets one of my favorite lines of dialogue that she's had in a while, which is, Will you surrender, or must we do battle? Surrender? Girl, you're a fool! On the contrary, Solar, I am neither a fool nor a girl. I am a warrior born, the equal or better of any mortal man. And she whacks him with a sword, which is cool. But then Nighthawk goes, oh, Val. And she's like, oh, I must tend to his wounds. And and everybody, like Doctor Strange is like, Val, go treat Nighthawk. There's this assumption that you're a woman. 
You're probably a nurse. You know what to do with psychosomatic sunburns. Yeah, but like, nobody took a look at his wounds at any point before he got to the hospital. Yeah, that was another part of this that just didn't, and we'll get into this maybe later, but that didn't sit quite right with me about her character, and like, she is a warrior, as yeah. she said. Yeah, and she's just reestablished herself as a warrior, and then they're all like, no, one of the men is sick, so you go tend to him, we'll take care of the battle part. Yeah, that's dumb. It is dumb. Yeah. yeah. What are you going to do? Just like stand around and be like, oh, Kyle, I'm sorry that you're on the floor and in pain. I guess. It's a waste of talent, man. Just leave Kyle collapsed on the floor. Yeah, nobody cares anyway, yeah, guys. Just fight, fight the other dudes. Nobody cares. Yeah. We get Cobalt Man, who we don't really see much of other than, again, like with Valkyrie's costume, it's like, hey, didn't you die in front of everybody? Yeah, but I'm back. With no explanation. And hanging a lampshade on the fact that he was dead before. Like, just bringing up the fact that everybody thought he was dead because they saw him die in a nuclear explosion doesn't explain things. But yeah, no, we don't see too much from the Cobalt Man. I guess he's really bad, bad guy who has nuclear powers. I did look up his origin a little bit. And he's a guy who is, I think, kind of a rival for Iron Man. He tried to make his own suit of armor that would harness nuclearness and cobalt, and he was going to give it to the government instead of private industry the way that Tony Stark did with Iron Man. But I guess after he had developed his costume, but before he gave it to the government, he decided to be in a pole vaulting competition with his brother, and he hit his head and decided to be evil. <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah. Oh, no. Yeah, so kind of disposed to like the, the uh, Cobalt Man. Oh, man, he needed to get some coaching from Mal Duncan. He really did. I mean, when you're street pole vaulting. It's a whole different game. Exactly, because it's all about not hitting your head and becoming evil. <laughs> exactly, that's the main thing you learn. First, first lesson. It's about the pole vault in your heart. Not in your head. Yeah, not in your head and then hitting your head and becoming evil. Don't do it. Yeah. What a shitty not job. Not worth it. What an asshole. Yeah, fucking cobalt, man. And then we get the head of the operation, the egg head of the operation. Uh. Egghead, who is definitely not the egghead we've seen before. When we saw Egghead last in Giant Size Defenders 4, as we are reminded of twice in the footnotes, he was a sad sack who was living on the street because he had been kicked out of the YMCA by the other people staying there because he kept insulting them and he was such an asshole. He was trying to scrape together enough of a loan to build one of his evil inventions and couldn't do that. His niece refused to loan him money and he was enraged by that and so he made a bomb and blew up her arm. Like, not only is he an asshole, but he is an incompetent asshole. And in this... Yeah, he's still an asshole, but he's, like, hyper-competent. Asshole in space. And he's in space because he just, like, yeah, it was no problem for a man of my intelligence to arrange parole. That doesn't make any fucking sense. Because what we have seen of Egghead before is that he is canonically terrible with people. Mm -hmm. It would be way easier for him to escape from prison than to talk someone into giving him parole. And then stealing a NASA... Space station thing. That is a level of competence we have not seen from him. 
Also, a little dig at NASA because there's a thing in there about, like, I don't even know if they've noticed. Yeah, he doesn't know if they've noticed. Also, NASA apparently has time stasis torture devices aboard their space stations. Oh, I thought he built those. He may have modded. It, that that may have been a, a post-purchase mod that he did. Yeah. Okay, maybe I'm being a little harsh on NASA there. But either way, Egghead has gone from an evil, bumbling genius to a just straight-up evil genius. And I don't like that. He talks about the fact that my downfall last time was my fixation on vengeance. So this time I'm going to be even more vengeful and vengeance-filled. He's drawn differently as well. He looks more evil and more tough, and he's got a, and a more, fancy uniform. More realistic face. Like, he looks kind of like a bigger-headed Colonel Clink. It's a definitely a very different portrayal of Egghead than we've seen before. Yep. Yeah, I like the old guy who got himself beat up and thrown out of the water. I didn't like him. He was a piece of shit. He was an arrogant asshole who deserved to get beat up by the other homeless men in the facility. But he was a more interesting character that way. That's what I meant. I didn't okay. mean I like him like you, I want to go have a beer him with him or something. You want to hug and kiss him. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. I know you don't want to hug and kiss Egghead. Either version of them, man. He's a bad person. I don't want to hug bad people. I know you don't want to hug bad people, Corey. I'm sorry. It's okay, I guess. So, there is one other kind of interesting thing on this issue. Uh, the cover is drawn by Jack Kirby, and it's pretty cool looking. Now, I say it's drawn by Jack Kirby. It's mostly drawn by Jack Kirby. They had John Romita come in and redraw the Hulk and Power Man's head. Why? I don't know. Jack Kirby was the guy who first drew the Hulk. I think maybe his portrayal was not consistent with the way they wanted him drawn in the 70s. He was relatively new back at Marvel at the time. He had just been working at DC. It almost seems like a hazing thing. And I love Jack Kirby's art, and I like the way he draws people's heads. It's very stylized, but... DC did the same thing when he first got there. They they had the house artist redraw Superman's head when Kirby would draw Superman on covers. And it just seems shitty. I think they should have let uh they should have let Kirby do the character that he created. Is that a, a, a common practice to have an artist that's a more like recognizable name or something do the covers versus the person that draws the rest of the comic? Uh it's not uncommon. The the idea I think is Generally, you just want a more dynamic cover that will generate as much heat as possible for a comic book. And so you will have people that specialize in being cover artists. Uh, Nick Cardi did a lot more of the Teen Titans covers than he did the interiors. He also was just kind of a popular DC cover artist at the time. It depends on the title and it depends on the era you're looking at, but there definitely were people that would do a lot of covers for the company that weren't necessarily the interior books artist. Oftentimes it would just be the person who drew the comic book would do the cover. Hmm. So it, it isn't uncommon, but it isn't universal, certainly. Um, but I, I mean, I don't think they had Kirby sign this one. I mean, you can definitely tell it's him by the way that he draws Solar. Like that is absolutely a Jack Kirby face. But I don't know. I think it's weird that they redrew the heads and the Hulk's head looks out of place on the body. I just thought that was worth breaking up. Sure. Despite all of the words and explanations and everything, I'm still kind of confused about... So, Egghead wants this gem. Right. Uh, one of Doctor Strange's old buddies 
shows up in New York with it. Oh, Doctor Strange's best friend, who we've never seen before. Yeah, Not guy. just in this comic book, in Marvel Comics. This is Omar Karindu's first appearance, and he is cre- he is treated as though, like, oh, you guys all know Omar Karindu, right? And it he's given a specific, like, oh, yeah, Steve last saw him in Strange Tales number 136, Between the Lines. It's such a, like, it, it's saying, like, oh, yeah, they probably hung out just off-panel, but he's totally Steve's best friend who he's known forever. Yeah, so that guy shows up. Yeah. Oh, well, first he sends his pal Bundu. Yeah, Bundu shows up. The hospital is like, "Yo, Steve, you gonna come check this thing out?" And so Steve goes to check it out, and it's and it's the famous gem that Egghead's after. And then Steve's like, "Oh shit, man, I'm totally having an epiphany." I think he maybe got hypnotized by the stone. We, like, we, I did. Did you follow though? What was I don't know. To? That's something I think will maybe be revealed later, but it didn't. I didn't know what was happening. I couldn't tell. So confusing. This comic book was a pie made out of steel. I didn't like it. I think that's a good segue. Yeah. Let's get into the minutia. Rick, would you mind singing us in? We got minutia. It's not the biggest part, it's just minutia. Like Cory eating farts, we got minutia. Time to sweat the small stuff. Thanks, Rick. Well... I just described this comic book as a pie made out of steel, and that I don't like it. What in this issue was your pie not made out of steel? What was your favorite metaphor? I don't know if this counts as a metaphor, or maybe it's a weird timestamp. Okay. Which we don't have for this category, but there's a scene in which Rhino and Solar are discussing the Defenders and how sweaty they are and that they don't (laughs) like that. Um, I like that. <laughs> and the defenders are chasing them. And uh, one of them says to the other, I think it's Solar, these sweat hogs will catch us at any moment. <laughs> and that was my, my steel pie, was referring to the defenders as sweat hogs. Now, if the defenders were sweat hogs, which one of them do you think was going to be John Travolta? Which is going to be Horshack? I don't know, but I think Steve really thinks he's a Mr. Cotter in this situation. Oh, Steve is no Gabe Kaplan. No. They both do have nice mustaches, though. <laughs> I can see Nighthawk saying up your nose with a rubber hose, but yeah. I don't think he's a Vinny... Barbarino. Vinny Barbarino! <laughs> hey! Ah, nice pull, man. I could not come together with that. I don't know where that came from. That was a long time ago. Yeah, so Rhino says, I joined the uh, this emissaries of evil group for one thing. Money. Not to play patty cake with a caped magician and his sweaty sidekicks. <laughs> I know, Rhino. I know. But those sweat hogs will catch us at any moment. Is that a... Was that a thing oh, in the 70s oh, that oh, people Dr. Said? Strange! Dr. Strange! <laughs> I don't know if that counts as a metaphor, but that it cracked me up and that's what I chose. I think that is fair enough. I also chose something one of the villains said. I liked it when Rhino said, Pal, you're about as smart as a donkey's armpit. I wrote that down as well. Ha! I really liked that. I feel like that is a better metaphor than Rhino would usually come up with. I also don't know if an armpit is necessarily the dumbest part of a donkey. Well, donkeys don't have arms. Oh! They just have legs, man. So this is like that Tandy computer joke that that kid in fourth grade (laughs) used to make. That's right. There was a kid in my fourth grade class who is the inspiration for the voice that I use for Egghead. But he uh, he used to tell this joke that was, 
What's the difference between a smart Tandy owner and a dumb Tandy computer owner? What is the difference? A smart Tandy computer owner doesn't exist! Ha! <laughs> As you can imagine, he was the most popular kid in fourth grade. I'm sure of it. Probably more of an Amiga guy than a Tandy guy. Yeah, well, I mean, the, the smart money was on the Intellivision. My backup was when Luke Cage smashes the rhino into the ground and calls him a hunk of snot. Yeah. That was pretty good. That was pretty good. He grabbed him by the horn part of his rhino hat uh-huh. and smashed him into the ground. Yep. Very, very tough. And then called him a hunk of snot. Bad. Oof. Bad, bad, bad. Hate to be called that. Bad meaning good. Mm-hmm. What was your favorite sound effect? There was a lot of sound effects in this issue. There really were. I went with a kind of smaller one. What was your favorite? My absolute favorite one was the word BOAM, but it was separated. The uh, syllables were separated by the feet of a character that was getting smashed into. That was, I believe, the Defenders cooperatively punching the Cobalt Man. Yeah. So that's Luke Cage, the Hulk, and Valkyrie simultaneously punching Cobalt Man. BOAM! Pretty good. Yep. Super Marvel comic-y. Yeah. There was a pretty good womp of uh, the Hulk and Cobalt Man tussling. You got a Krang, you got a Crump. I liked the Crump. I you I know you love the Crump. You're a real Tommy the Hip Hop Clown in that regard. I don't like clowns, though. I know. But you love to Crump. You're an enigma, Corey. I'm <laughs> <laughs> a terrible dancer. That is not true, Corey. We won a dance contest together. Oh, that was a We long won time ago. and choreographed a dance contest, and it wasn't even close. That's true. We did a fine job. Uh huh. My favorite sound effect is, as I said, it's a smaller one. Every time the rhino takes a step, there's a little thoom, thoom, thoom uh, that accompanies a crack on the pavement that forms under him. And I really liked that. I thought it was really evocative and uh, just nicely done. And that was my favorite sound effect. I like it. Yeah. I noticed that panel as well. He weighs a lot. He does indeed. Or he's just like doing that like little He's kid. really I'm stompy. Like really angry. I think it's a combination stomping. of the two. Sartorially speaking, which instances of fashion do you feel are most worthy of note? I had never seen the Cobalt Man before. And uh -huh. I thought his getup was pretty awesome. And the panel on which he appears is also pretty awesome. Yeah, he's uh, he's got the nice atomic symbol on his tummy. That's a good time. He has kind of a weird, like, aggressive... It looks like orthodontic headgear that he's wearing. That's where his nose would be, though. Yeah, That's well, weird. it got jarred out of place. I'm assuming. Oh. It's weird. Yeah, it's like he's wearing a visor over his nose. Do you think that's just so he doesn't break his nose when he's fighting? Yeah, maybe that's like his... It's like a shark, you know? It's like his most sensitive part. Mm. Oh, so if you ever get into a fight with a cobalt man, bat him firmly on the snout, or try to hook a gill. Yeah, yeah, or stick your finger up his... Up his butt? Nose. Oh. Your finger... Sorry. <laughs> it's a fair mistake. Well, if the cobalt man has clamped down on another cobalt man at the cobalt man park apparently you're supposed to try to stick a finger up his butt and it'll get him to release his grip what are you talking about it's the thing i heard about pit bulls if a pit bull is clamped down you're supposed to stick your finger up his butt and it'll make him release his grip oh my 
my god. That's uh, why I heard that before. Yeah. No, and it's probably true of Cobalt Man, too. I haven't tried it. It may not be true. What this he... may be a rumor that was started by, I don't know, pitbulls who are into weird shit. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, Cobalt Man's got a pretty good costume. <laughs> He's got some fucking 80s business lady shoulder pads going on. And so does Egghead. Egghead's new costume was another thing that I that wanted to bring up. That was the other bit of fashion. Um, yeah, before his costume was, he was dressed kind of like Elmer Fudd. Uh, he had one of those type of hats on. I mean... It was cold. I guess it's not cold in outer space. Unlike what the song Rocket Man would have us believe. Well, no, because he's in... The I heard that dash. it was cold as hell. Not the kind of place you'd want to raise your kids. That's Mark. Yeah. But he's on a, a NASA space station. Well, I mean, like, the fucking Rocket Man wasn't just, like, going out building a snowman. Well, he was he, presumably he... in a rocket as well. No, when he got to Mars. Oh, got gotcha. Out. Okay. That makes sense. Pretty sure. Yeah. No, I get it. Uh, but, yeah, he used to just wear kind of, like, hand-me-down winter coats and shit. And now he's dressed kind of like man-at-arms. I think, from He-Man, only with the <laughs> 80s business lady shoulder pads. The coloration is very man on arms right? He right? Was... Yeah, but he probably couldn't find a helmet that would fit over that fucking egg dome of his. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's That's like... probably why he's so angry. It's an okay look. He's got the little shoulder pads and a weird, like, metal vest harness thing on. His eyes are creepy as fuck. They're supposed to be little spectacles, and there's only one point at which you can see his eyes through the spectacles. Yeah, and I think that's the first time. I think generally we see him with having the lenses of his glasses be opaque like that. Uh, the one scene in which you do see his eyeballs, it's somehow more distressing to see him look more human-looking but still have the giant egg-shaped skull like he's fucking Vincent Price on Batman. It's or a it's Dan a Aykroyd in the Coneheads. Yeah, or a Jane Curtin in the Coneheads. All scary. <laughs> yes. Terrifying. Oh, very scary. <sighs> we get no shirt Nighthawk. You talked about when he was getting treated for his injuries. He takes off his shirt for the doctor to say, like, yeah, you don't have any burns. It's weird to see a dude. He's wearing the whole rest of his superhero outfit. He takes the time to put on his jetpack, I guess, but not his shirt. Here's what I think happened. Yeah. I've been thinking about it because he's he's also got his bird nose get up on. Right. Well, and I mean, he's got to protect his secret identity. Well, his whole outfit is super tight because it's all spandex or whatever. Do you think they had to cut the shirt off? Yep. Okay. I think they showed up and it's like, burn emergency. Oh my God. He somehow burnt through his spandex. And then they use those funky scissors and they cut his shirt off. And then that doctor had that big tub of ointment. and was like, I'm going to put this all over you. He says that there were no physical injuries from the burning. But it does look like they burned his nipples off. Ooh, that's weird because in the hospital scene, he has nipples. Oh, maybe he just covered them up with an ungent? What's an ungent? A balm. Oh. A salve. So you think that the, the medical aid holding that big tub of whatever yeah. it is just rubbed it all over his <laughs> nipples? And then I was like, no, you're fine. Yep. <laughs> It is a weird look when he's just, like, wearing the whole rest of his outfit but no shirt. I bet that's his preferred... I think he's trying look. to make that his thing. I think this mm -hmm. is his first excuse. We'll see if maybe that's just his new look going forward. Mm -hmm. uh, he could maybe just make, like, Black Goliath and just cut a big window into the front of uh, his shirt. Yep. The other thing that I wanted to bring up is Incognito the Hulk. 
because we do see Hulk Aww. wearing his disguise he does such of a looking good job. 100% like the Hulk, but wearing a trench coat and fedora that does not even begin to cover his purple unintentional jorts or the fact that he is bright green. But all that the Marvel Universe is looking for you to make is a good faith effort with a uh, disguise. So everybody is like, yep, regular dude sitting there feeding the birds. I love it. Corey, in every episode of a Defenders comic book, one character has to act in a manner that is contrary to a previously established character or motivation in a way that advances the plot. They have to, to quote the fat boys from the film Crush Groove, be a sucker. In this issue, who just had to be a sucker? This one is often a little hard for me to sort out. The best candidate in this issue is no exception. Yeah, this issue, though, it was more which one of them. Because there were a lot of people who I felt acted very much out of character in this issue. Yep. And so the one that I chose was Val for putting up with everybody's bullshit about, like, you have to hang out with the inert Kyle when there's ass-kicking to be done. And her just being like, okay. Yeah, that seemed weird. Like, she's loyal and she's a good teammate. And so in, in that respect, it's not a very sucker move. But at the same time, like, shit's going down and she's totally just, like, able to deal with it, like... Yeah, Why especially she? she's just reestablished herself as a warrior. Mm -hmm. But instead, she's just like, no, I'm just going to hang out with this oh, okay, I'll unconscious just, uh, guy that I don't Yeah, like and that not much. really do anything for him either. Mm -hmm. it, it's not like, I mean, Didn't it even seems like. Rub salve on his nipples. <laughs> take him to the hospital for that. Yeah. Well, or why doesn't she just take him to the hospital then? Or, you know, call a taxi. Yeah. Fucking spray him with a fire extinguisher. Something. Like in first blood. <laughs> yeah, that sounds fun. <laughs> I bet she's had to do that to Kyle before. But I mean, also he's on fire. So, you know, for that reason. Oh, good call. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think that's a fair choice. I decided to go with Egghead for all the reasons we've gone over before. He is just not acting like himself. He went to like a Tony Robbins for super criminals thing and got all fired yeah, up. Yeah, he's and just... way better at being an evil genius. The fact that he is a team leader in any regard, when before he could not get the dudes at the YMCA to not beat the shit out of him, how do you make that fucking leap? That's just not the same guy. He probably had to listen to, like, a lot of podcasts. Yeah. And read articles. Oh. Do so you think he, like, did some, like, Malcolm Gladwell type shit? Or Tony Robbins? Yeah. I think he went to Est. Oh, probably. Probably he went and Nebulon. He's like, ah, bozo. It's like, I am a bozo. Now I'll steal a space station. Yeah, I think that's what happened. Who was the best defender and who was the worst offender? Worst offender. Despite the fact that I liked seeing him engulfed in solar flame <laughs> at the beginning, he was remarkably ineffective. Yep. Kyle, yep. Nighthawk, Bird it's Nose. All those things and more. Are <laughs> the worst. He, he he was the worst. He does yeah. one bit of action that's like he tries to hit Cobalt Man. Yeah. And I, you can't even... He gets super injured like there's blood splurting somewhere, but you can't tell what happened or why. It looks like he... I know I've brought this up before, but it looks like Ricky O style. He punched his own fist off. Yeah, he's just like, ow! <laughs> But That's also, like, oh, they need my help. I'm gonna fucking jump out of this hospital bed and use my strength of two men to punch this three-story dude who is made out of metal and nuclear fire what a in the shoulder. What a stupid asshole. Yeah. 
I did like that that he was described as the oft-injured Nighthawk. Well, now we know why. Yeah. That Good call. Bad choice. Dumb, dumb Nighthawk. Dumb. Stupid fucking Kyle. <laughs> Who did you have for the worst? Also Kyle. Oh. Yeah, he's definitely the worst. On the other hand, who did you have as the best defender? This one was a little bit harder for me. I had a bit of a toss-up. Okay. But ultimately, I went with the Hulk. Okay. Because he was loyal to all of his friends. Mm -hmm. He wanted to protect them and, you know, stop people from getting hurt. But mostly, he was very patient. He sat on that park bench wearing that fedora for like an hour. Yeah. Which, to me, seems like a super long time for a Hulk to chill out. He did a great job. Especially, and this is another quibble that I have with Jerry Conway's writing and the way that he referenced previous issues. He referenced that all the Defenders were tired after what they dealt with in Hulk 206 and 207. What happened in the Hulk 206 and 207 is the Hulk's girlfriend from the subatomic world that he ended up in, Jarella, was killed. And he was trying to get her healed and brought back to life. So his girlfriend just died. And he is now patient and understanding, and there's no mention of him being distressed or upset about what had happened previously. If you're going to reference those issues, you have to show the repercussions of what happened in them. You can't say this one aspect of them happened, here's this issue. It just comes across as he's like, look at all the comics I read, I know something that happened in this. And then not following through. Just leave out the reference if you're not going to have it impact anything. But yeah, the Hulk did a good job. So Conway was the... The worst defender. The worst defender. (laughs) Honestly, yes. But Phil Kyle was the worst defender. Okay. okay. But for best defender, I went with Luke Cage. Really? Yeah, he did a good job with punching and he called Rhino a a hunk of snot. A hunk of snot. And he was really the only one who had a definitive defeat of an individual villain in this. It was the way that he took down Rhino as Rhino had just attacked Hulk and punched him in the back. Grabs him by his horn drives him into the ground, calls him a hunk of snot, makes two discreet references to the fact that he lives on 42nd Street. He had a strong showing this issue, I thought. Yeah, yeah, he did good. Yeah. That's fair. What's your favorite panel? Well, we already talked about it, but I did love the Hulk disguise on page 26 when he's sitting there on that park bench. I had that too. He just looks like he's an old man feeding the birds. It's retired older gentleman, the Hulk. But I think my my favorite one is the one that we already talked about with my favorite sound effect. And it's the one where the three Defenders are smashing Cobalt on page 31. I called it Defenders Smash Cobalt. Badass and typical Defenders awesomeness. Yeah, I liked that a lot. I think my favorite was on page six and I call it Kirby Crackle Solar. And it is a image of Solar just bursting with power, and he looks as though he is made of the Kirby Crackles. And it's really cool looking. That is really cool. And I think you maybe missed something in some of them when you were viewing the comic in black and white instead of in color, and I feel like the color really makes this one pop. And also, probably worth mentioning, Klaus Jansen uh, is both the inker and colorist on this issue, and Mm -hmm. I think he does a great job. Yeah, yeah, the color one is much more interesting. As we established by you deciding that he was the best defender, we all know that the Hulk rules. In this issue, what were the Hulk's rules? The Hulk's rules in this issue are that self-awareness and situational awareness are super relevant to not only crime fighting, but really getting on in life. So if you know that you're angry, but you're angry 
and wet, then good on you. So there's there's a scene where like he reasons this whole thing out where he's like, Man, I'm already pissed off and then somebody threw water on me, now I'm wet, now I'm wet and angry. Uh, I'm gonna smash. So just know yourself. Really, those are the whole rules. I think that is a good lesson that we would all do well to learn. The other lesson that the Hulk learned And stay dry too. Yeah. Oh you gotta stay dry. Stay dry. Mm-hmm. Always do your research on a prospective employer. Because a job interview is as much for you to interview them as it is for them to interview you. The Hulk learned this by seeing the employment opportunities that were chosen by Solar and the Rhino. Because when they started working for Egghead, they should have asked a few more questions. Like, when you fuck up, are you going to stick me in a torture tube for six hours? And uh, maybe if they had asked that question, Egghead... Loves to talk about himself. He probably would have answered them. And they would have said, you know what? Maybe I'm going to seek employment elsewhere. That's a good lesson. Yeah. Do your research on your potential employer. A job interview is for you as much as it is for them. I like it. And that's the Hulk's Rules. Mm. Well, I suppose that just leaves us with what were the Wong doings that Wong was doing in the year of our Lord, 1976, and the month of our Lord, December. What was Wong doing? Well, Wong came home from doing some errands and uh, was making his way to the to the kitchen. And he heard a lot of crinkling and muttering and little sniffles and proceeded to find Strange sitting at the, the, the prep table in the kitchen, surrounded by bags of open Doritos. What?! Covered in Dorito dust. Oh, no. Weeping. <laughs> Why? What happened? That was exactly Wong's question. He was like, Stephen. Oh, no. What? This is very unusual. I don't understand <laughs> what is going on. It turned out that Steve Strange had read a newspaper article earlier that morning about uh, Fidel Castro's ascension to power in Cuba and that the former leader he had replaced was Osvaldo Dorticos Torado. And uh, Steve conflated that with Doritos and thought that the supply chain was going to be all fucked up with Cuba going communist and went to the store and just bought all of them that he could get his hands on and ate himself into a stupor. And so Wong had to correct him about the name and also the fact like, that, that it was he had been a puppet president and Fidel Castro had already been in power. And, yeah, yeah, and the Doritos are fine, man. Yeah. And it's just unrelated, so why don't we get you a glass of water? Go hit the showers, get cleaned up, and everything's going to be fine. So, good on Wong. Good on Wong, indeed. Wong did a lot of good deeds for his fellow defenders <laughs> that month. He had been uh, hanging out with Valkyrie a bunch, and Valkyrie was um, understandably frustrated with the other defenders treating her like she had to be a maid or a nurse to them, essentially, and just hold Kyle's hand all the time. And so uh, he, he took time out and he, he sat down with Valkyrie and she, he saw that she was frustrated. And she's like, don't they understand that, that I am a strong warrior, that women can be warriors? And so Wong listened to her and he sat the other defenders down and made them watch the debut of the TV show Wonder Woman. Ah. He's like, see, that is a warrior. Valkyrie is a warrior. And I don't know that it all took, but he did his best. And then he had noticed that the Hulk... Still pretty upset about his girlfriend dying. So he's like, I, I want to cheer. I want to cheer the Hulk up. And I know the Hulk is 
still kind of childlike in many regards. And I, I think maybe if he had a, a toy or something to play with, he, he would enjoy. So he, he tried buying the Hulk some various action figures, and the Hulk just destroyed them almost instantaneously. But then he saw that there was a new toy on the market for December of 1976 that even the Hulk would have difficulty destroying. So he went and he got Hulk a Stretch Armstrong, which was the <laughs> hot Christmas toy of 1976. And uh, the Hulk really appreciated that. But that is what uh, the Wong doings of December 1976 were. Very good. Very good indeed. And if you want to get into touch with us... <laughs> You can do so at ttwasteland at gmail.com. Straight to the woodshed. <laughs> Whatever that means. Yep. You can donate to us at patreon.com slash ttwasteland for all your giving us money needs. If you do so, uh, you will also get exclusive content, including the monthly podcast, What the Duck, a podcast most foul, but with a W because he's a duck. That's the full name of the show. The Howard the Duck podcast that Lisa and I host. Corey and I went and saw Howard the Duck the movie I feel like in we 70 need to millimeter say about that. recently, and it had quite an effect. Oh, it, yeah, it's hard to describe. It was really something. I have a lot of thoughts about the Howard the Duck movie, but I'm gonna try to save them for that podcast. So if you want to hear my thoughts on Howard the Duck, both the comic book series and the movie, although I might try to save the movie and maybe me and Lisa will watch that at some point you guys and really uh, talk about it yeah. for the show. Anyway, there'll be a new episode of what the duck, etc. that'll be coming out in the next week or so. And we're going to be talking about Howard the Duck number one. And I'm really looking forward to that. And I'm looking forward to seeing you guys back next week when we talk about Aqualad in Tales of the New Teen Titans number 46. Woo! So we'll be back for that. And then we'll be back in two weeks to find out if Conway's run improved. If it doesn't, we only got a couple issues of it. Thanks for listening. Yes, thank you for listening. Thank you for having left us a review on iTunes or whatever. And yeah, we'll see you soon. Have a nice time, everybody. Yep. Burrito! And they knew it! Um, that's nothing. That's nonsense. <laughs> Take that one back to the woodshed. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> Jesus Christ.